G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. In this episode, we start with a look at the collision of fintech and agritech. Can putting these two together solve one of a farmer's biggest pain points? Then we'll revisit the City of Sydney's Tech Startup Action Plan. Now that it's been released, does it provide a template for other Australian cities to follow? All of that and more on this episode of This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by Braintree, the easy all-in-one payment solution for your app or website, by GetWorm, the go-to crowdsourcing site for startups, and by Creative3, Australia's largest conference for creative tech entrepreneurs and startups. One of the things that's been a great joy to cover on this program has been Australia's strength in agritech. And to see that happening, of course, we've talked to folks in Perth, we've talked to folks in Tasmania, we've talked to folks here in Sydney. But the other thing I've also been tracking and I've been really interested in is Australia's growing strength in fintech. And for the first time, we're starting to see how those lines might cross and what that cross might look like and what a real authentically Australian company that gets both the agritech and the fintech might look like. And it is my pleasure to welcome Emma Weston, who's the co-founder of Full Profile, onto Twista. Welcome, Emma. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. So let's sort of unroll this. I threw out a lot of buzzwords, Mm -hmm. all right? You are solving a really big problem for farmers in Australia. What is that problem? Put really simply, it is that, believe it or not, when farmers actually deliver their entire year's work, their entire year's produce to a buyer, they don't actually get paid for what they deliver when they deliver. And they may not get paid at all. They may not get paid at all. Um, You've got to remember that farmers are actually delivering not just to any buyer, they may be delivering to a trader buyer. Mm -hmm. And in a trading environment, there are, of course, winners and losers. Mm. Um, But even, you know, direct to consumer or end consumer or buyer, uh, there are still risks. Uh, The reality is that when you don't get paid for something, (laughs) um, at the time that you deliver, um, you're always at risk. So buyers do, no matter their reputation, do present genuine counterparty risks. Right. to growers. Well, well, every transaction has a level of counterparty risk and we build payment systems around that to be able to help ameliorate this risk. So how did the farmers end up with having assuming all of the risk in this? Yeah, I think there's it's, it's somewhat um, historical accident, like a lot right. of stories are, I guess. And the story here is that uh, Australia used to have um, a monopoly wheat exporter right. called the... The, the Australian Wheat Board, somewhat imaginatively named. Um, and Until it got into a spot of trouble. It got into a spot of trouble. And that's, a, that's a whole other story, of right. course. So, But what that meant, when it got into a spot of trouble, it de- we deregulated our market very quickly. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the past, when we had a regulated, a fully regulated market, uh, like it or loathe it, uh, farmers, grain farmers, um, we're really talking about here at the moment, right. uh, they actually had someone who was going to buy their wheat no matter what, right. no matter what the quality of the wheat, no matter when it was delivered, and that so was government A buyer of last resort. They had a buyer of last resort. They had a buyer of first and last resort <laughs> right. for a while when the monopoly was in place. As that monopoly was dismantled, they had a buyer of last resort, and then they had no buyer of, uh, of resort at all, uh, if we want to continue that language. What they had was a multiplicity of existing and new buyers who mm-hmm. came into the market 
And what that really meant was that buy- that the buyers, these many buyers, we had great competition, so that was awesome. Mm. However, we did not follow that up with the ability for farmers to do due diligence on these buyers. Right. And there is still no process in place for that, really. So you have all these buyers, but effectively they're opaque to the sellers. Yeah, that, that's correct. And this is not just a problem that is grain-centric, and it's not even just Australian-centric. So, so to give you, uh, let's make an analogy that I'll be familiar with. I, you know, I've used eBay a lot over mm-hmm. the years, but I used Gumtree for the first time not very long ago and realized that Gumtree had none of the stuff that allowed you to sort of inspect whether a buyer or seller were reputable. And so when I was selling something, all of these questions came in sort of proved my reliability. And they're questions you never get asked in eBay because quote-unquote monopoly trading environment, but it's also providing that guarantee. And so if you want commerce to flow freely, you kind of have to have those guarantees in place. In the absence of guarantees, you have a lot of legwork, right? So Gumtree still offers a service, but it relies upon you uh, as, you know, a participant to actually do quite a bit of legwork. And the reality is that many of us don't have the time to do that. So we shortcut. And, you know, farmers are no different, uh, except that the scale, they're not buying a used bike uh, or selling... A phone. Uh, I was selling know, a phone, they're, right. They're, right. They're, they're not doing that. They're actually um, dealing with their entire year's produce, their entire year's work. How much gets lost via this? You... Let's be clear that it is in a minority of cases yeah. uh, that, that growers don't get paid due to insolvency or liquidation event uh, at the buyer hands. However, what we're really talking about is tens of millions of dollars, sometimes over $100 million right. each year. And that just that varies depending upon market um, and depending upon the buyers involved. There was an unfortunate case that came to light recently um, in Victoria, and that particular situation has resulted in Baruga agri-products. Um, that particular situation has resulted in growers being left unpaid. Mm-hmm. In, in, it completely, the, the situation we're talking about, um, it also tragically uh, was linked to the death of the principal of that company. So wow. this is something that is actually very real. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to get too down uh, in our discussion, uh, but we also have a reality that um, rural suicide and regional suicide yeah. is at kind of two and a half times the national average, as I understand it. My my figures might be wrong, but that it's uh, you know it's it's a significant issue, mm-hmm. and that's often due to financial pressure, of course. Yeah, of course, of, as makes sense for anyone. That's you're... right. So it's significant, yeah. and we're not just talking about money, is what I guess right. I'm getting to. Um, the other thing talking is talking about someone losing the farm. We're talking about people losing the farm. We're talking about for every dollar that a farmer does get paid two and a half dollars or two dollars fifty is lost to the rural rural community right. in which that farmer resides so there are significant um, on costs if you like all right so even if that's that that's the worst case the farmer yep. doesn't get paid at all in the general case there's just still this really long lead time before the farmer gets paid and that's also lost money that's lost income it's lost interest it's whatever yep so uh, what are you doing now that we've spent all that time describing the pain point here? And it's a real pain point. And again, I had no idea this pain point existed. I think yeah. most people in Australia have no idea that when a truck comes in, collects a farmer's grain, that they don't 
get paid right there. Yeah, so out of sight, out of mind in terms of the problem, I guess, and we're exposing that problem. Mm. Uh, but I think you've you've hit on it when you talked about the long settlement times, right? Um, that brings us to the solution. And, you know, what is the way that we can deal with settlement times or what is one of the ways that we can deal with settlement latency? And one of those ways is uh, to, to have a look at having escrow right. uh, in place to provide some safeguarding around that latency. But the way that we're looking at it is we're implementing a blockchain solution in order to do that. So when and there's that magic word. And there's the hype word for yeah. you. So I guess that also uh, becomes um, you know, where we start connecting both ag tech and fintech as right. well. Okay. All right. So you say a blockchain or a distributed ledger. So essentially what you're saying, and, and you know, for the listeners who haven't read too much about the blockchain mm -hmm. you can think of it as a list of a, a ledger where people are making entries but everyone is sure that every entry in the ledger is correct and valid everyone agrees that all these ledger entries are valid so essentially what you then have is you have all of the parties to the transactions correct. using a common ledger yes that's that's right so everybody has access to and uh, has the ability to input data to this common ledger that is shared across all of the, the, the users in the system. Now, I think it sounds quite technical when we start getting to that language, mm. but just a way to think about it in the context of the use case we're talking about and the business that we're building is that effectively we have buyers, you know, banks perhaps, um, we may even have some very large growers who can all share information. And why is that important? Because what we can share is information such as uh, payment information. Mm. So the solution we're building uh, is that instead of a, a, a buyer, uh, sorry, a grower or his truckie, his or her truckie turning up at a silo um, and dropping off their grain and then hoping like hell they get paid for it, right. um, what they will actually do is turn up at the silo when their grain is weighed and we actually know what the contract value is for that grain, we can verify that the funds are available uh, on the buyer's part to pay for it, we can notify the grower immediately that that is the case and they can confidently unload their grain in the knowledge <laughs> that they will in fact get paid. Uh, it sounds so simple when you put it that way, right? Um, well, but, I, but, uh, but I can also see the moment that the trucker go, oh, well, you don't have the money, mate. I'm going to take it down the street. Absolutely. And, you know, that is... Uh, painful at the time but it's better than losing control of your asset yeah. uh, so at least at least you've still got the grain in right. the truck right. um, it is a bit of a pain to to get to that point and to be honest we would like to be able to uh, get further back to the farm gauge with that kind of notification so something I could envisage in the future is farmers actually going over a registered weighbridge very close to or on their farm in fact and finding out at that point in time whether or not the buyer had the funds available so I think we can you know we can keep building on what we're doing you're listening to this week in startups Australia we'll be right back <laughs> Hi, this is Mark Pesci with a few words about Twister Series sponsors Braintree, code for easy online payments. Entrepreneurs around the world have used Braintree as a simple way to accept PayPal and credit cards and debit cards and whatever's coming next. With a single scalable integration, you get robust fraud protection on over 130 currencies around the world, which makes your global expansion a snap. 
Using Braintree, it's as easy as integrating a few lines of code, and that gets your business up and running fast. To learn more, visit braintreepayments.com slash twista. And we're back talking to Emma Weston, the co-founder of Full Profile. So we've now described a solution. And I like the elegance of the fact that you have a, a, a weigh bridge. And as the grain is leaving the farm, it gets weighed. Messages fly through the various ether. Checks are made of various blockchain ledger entries. And you go, okay, we know that this buyer has the funds available to be able to pay. So therefore we should go to that buyer. We should take the truck to that buyer. The interesting thing about that is that also then makes it, uh, it provides an incentive for the buyer to make sure that they have the funds available because if it's visible, then in real time, they start losing business, right? So absolutely. One thing that becomes really important in these types of solutions um, is the fact that we're making a lot of information transparent, right? right? Um, so with transparency, what we will see is in the uh, case that we're talking about here is that the asset is really there, so the grain is really there. Mm. So that gives confidence to, to banks and buyers, in yeah. fact, when they're financing that asset. Uh, but we also see that the buyer has funds available. So we're talking about making that really visible mm. um, to the users so that the correct decision can be made. Okay. So I understand what the product is. How do you now, how do you roll something out to the agricultural market? How does this work? Yeah, it's a great question, Mark. Um, I think this is not something you can roll out without having uh, played in this space in a mm. major way before. Okay, so. well, let's step back. So this because this is not your first time at the dance no, here, right? You no. have, you you have had a, a, a successful commodities trading firm for a number of years. Yeah, a broking firm. That's right, and we did do some trading as well. So in reality, uh, the my co-founders and I we have built and uh, sold previously two ag tech businesses. Mm -hmm. um, we sold them to publicly traded companies. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is not a first for us. However, each of our entrepreneurial activities uh, in the ag space has been getting progressively more techy, <laughs> if I can put it that way. Right. So we have also been on a journey. Mm -hmm. um, but to get back to your original question about how would you roll out a business such as this, um, in terms of the Australian context, we might just keep it in Australia for the moment, yeah. but we are looking at uh, overseas markets as well. Um, the important thing that we need to do as a business is actually have both technical feasibility and commercial feasibility for what we're doing. Mm -hmm. The technical feasibility we will come from the pilot that we are putting in place this harvest. Mm -hmm. So we will be able to prove up what we are doing on a blockchain that is real-time uh, payment on title transfer on a blockchain. Um, but we also- Is that the first time this will have ever happened in agriculture as far as we know, or has someone else done this? As far as we know, and I would, I, I would, I'm really happy to be corrected yeah, if yeah. someone else knows something that I don't. But as far as I know, this will be the first pilot of, or in fact, of any kind of physical agri commodity settlement on a blockchain in the world. Whoa. As far as I know. Wow. Okay. All right. So I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, but. not at all. So, um, what this depends on, of course, is having a buyer who's really interested yeah. and motivated. Um, we, 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 we do potentially have, have such a buyer and, and others who have also showed their interest in this. Do those buyers have to be willing to front up around the transparency that's going to be requested of them in order to be a party to this? Yeah, so they have to understand that they need to be well-financed. Um, they cannot be uh, using 
the growers or the terms, their payment terms as a form of working capital yeah, anymore. Or float, right? right. Because effectively, this is cash on delivery. Yeah. We're moving to a system of cash on delivery. Now, what we want to be able to deliver for buyers down the track is that same kind of benefit. So that we want to take this beyond just the primary transaction between mm-hmm. a grower and a buyer mm-hmm. to also then into the trade-to-trade market, right. also settled on the same basis, yeah. into the export and processing markets, and eventually to the consumer. So our vision is of a full end-to-end agri-supply chain. We just happen to have the belief that you should start at the beginning, and that's with the <laughs> grower. And you laugh because actually there's lots of people who don't believe that. Well, but the thing is, is that's clearly why the farmer was getting this hor- these horrible terms, because no one was starting with the farmer. Yeah, yeah. Right? Because so, maybe it's believed the farmer is just going to grow no matter what, and therefore... I, I think that uh, the farmer um, is seen as a price taker. Um, right. they're, they, they don't have... I mean, we alluded to it before that with the, the deregulation of various agricultural markets, you obviously have the a difference in the commercial representation of farmers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they now have to represent themselves into the market. Some of them do reorganize into cooperative structures or have brokers who act on their behalf. But, you know, essentially they're on their own. Right. Uh, they're very busy people uh, running large businesses quite often, multi-million right. dollar businesses. Right. And highly technical businesses. I mean, farm equipment is among the most sophisticated robotics you're going to find anywhere in the world. Absolutely. And, you know, let us let me take the opportunity to dispel the myth that farmers are not innovative oh, no. um, or are not good adopters of technology. <laughs> A farmer will adopt any technology that creates value. Yeah. And uh, that that's what we need to demonstrate to both farmers, buyers, uh, and also financiers as yeah. part of this system. I think we, people forget that the first, un- until about 500 years ago all technology was agricultural technology full stop yeah i mean there has been enormous innovation um in in agriculture and i think what we're seeing with the convergence perhaps of ag tech and fintech Mm. um, is a future domain of innovation um, in agriculture again that that's led from a really commercial perspective Uh, and i think that's really exciting so we're still going to see great innovation in farm tech but perhaps ag tech is broadening out now to look at agribusiness as a whole all right, I'm going to put my marker there because we will come back to that because I want to understand Australia's role in that. But let's talk about full profile. So what is, so you, you figure you have the buyers. Are the farmers lining up for this now? It seems like this is a very easy sale to make to them. Yeah, I, I, I will confess that we are perhaps putting in more effort at a buyer level than we are at a farmer level. Well, if you don't uh, need to because they're queuing you up. Know, um, we have not yet had a farmer come and say, I actually, I'd prefer not to get paid <laughs> or I'd prefer to, to, to have my payment um, delayed or deferred. Right. Now, the reality is some farmers will want that for various reasons, but they're tax-driven reasons. You know, they're... Let's just put that park that. So to they're the being side. very sophisticated financially. Right. Let's that park point. that to the side for now. Um, the way that we've been uh, liaising with farmers is both and and getting some customer validation around what we're doing is both on an individual farmer basis. We've also been looking at large corporate farmers because they have different sets of requirements. Right. Uh, they're a different type of user. And we've also been liaising with farmer lobby and representative bodies such as New South Wales Farmers, for example, uh, Victorian Farmers Federation. Now, these we're really lucky in our country to have those sorts of bodies that we can go to who are very open to this sort of discussion mm-hmm. and have made this pathway really easy for us. Okay. Well, again, if you're, this is a pain point that if many farmers are feeling it. Yes. You know, you're sort of you're coming in going, "Hey, we we may have a solution to this." Yeah, I I'd, I'd like to think that we 
we it's not May that we do have a solution and that it's a reality. Um, I really want to attack the rhetoric that's coming out in some of the blockchain discussion that uh, blockchain is, you know, five to seven years away or, you know, yeah. I, I can see why that is coming out of the areas that's coming out of. Um, but in there are so many great startups doing wonderful, um, moving way beyond proof of concept and into production environments using blockchain technology. And solving one specific problem, right? Like yes. rather than trying to boil the ocean, it's like, hey, we're going to boil that pot and yeah. that'll be fine. A- absolutely. And, you know, our view is that what we can do is at a, at a macro level is we can solve both a financial problem as well as a provenance or a traceability problem. And actually, when you look at what that really means, that means solving a supply chain problem. Okay, and full profile takes a bit of a cut on these transactions as they pass through. That's correct. Okay, yeah. so it's a, it's a normal sort of service-based business model at that It, it will be. It's a commercial business that will be driven yeah. by commercial imperatives of its users. What is the total dollar volume of trades in grains in Australia in a year, at least from the farmers to their first buyers? Yeah, I mean, so... I'll abstract that right out to globally so we can understand right. really how big um, the, the market is. And the the global market uh, for that primary transaction between growers and buyers, uh, not just for grains, but for all agricultural transactions, is around $4 trillion a year. <laughs> that's so a lot of zeros it, right it, there. It's, it's a lot of zeros, that's right. And it's... Um, uh, you know, the reason I throw that out there straight away is because a lot of that does occur in the developed world. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a real area of focus. We are, we've often seen um, ag tech and uh, ag slash blockchain solutions um, move to developing world opportunities. Yeah. And, and I think that is a very real and good cause. Um, our focus is very squarely on the developed world. That also means that we need to be very respectful of investment that has already been made in Mm. infrastructure Mm -hmm. um, in in this country and and elsewhere. And the solution that we have to come up with has to be actually seizured to its environment. It can't be abstracted um, and it can't be just led by blockchain itself. It actually has to be led by the real environment. Okay, so this brings me to my final question. Is Australia in a sense, the only place that a full profile could happen because it's got this interesting coincidence of fintech and agritech that, the, the in other words, this is the right plot of land. This is the right paddock for this to grow in. Um, I'd, I'd love to think that agtech is going to be an amazing light export for Australia mm. going forward. Uh, I think we're really uniquely placed. Uh, we're very good at technology. Uh, we're certainly very good at generating ideas. I think we can get better at execution, oh, yeah. mind you. Always. Um, but that's probably across the globe. And obviously agriculture is, is part of our backbone in this country. Um, and we're always going to be producing more than we domestically consume, or at least for a very long time. So we are uniquely placed to look at not only exporting commodity, but exporting commodity-related technology as well. Where would that perhaps be exported to? Uh, At the moment, our focus is on Canada Mm -hmm. as a primary market. Uh, Really similar market with similar problems um, around the grower payments issue. Uh, I didn't really touch on the fact that we're also looking at Um, with the smart contract technology, which is, of course, the code layer on top of the blockchain that enables these transactions um, and enables them in a way that is automatic. Mm -hmm. Um, We are 
building in the ability to deduct research levies and remit them straight away to the research agency. In Australia, for grain, that would include uh, the Grains Research and Development Corporation, and so we see a great use case there actually around levy collection and remissions. In Canada, Tax office is going to love you. In Canada, uh, there are in fact 22 levies across five or six provinces, and uh, there's so there's actually a very similar use case there. And we also have um, in Canada a deregulated environment where they dealt with regulation by putting in a licensing system for buyers, and that licensing system requires buyers to bond or to put up in terms of real capital, mm. real cash their outstanding liabilities to growers and report on those on a fortnightly basis to Uh the Canadian Grain Commission. Now, this is quite a headache. Uh, It probably incentivizes some gaming of the system. And my understanding from uh, the the partners that we're currently working with in Canada is that the system just simply doesn't work. Right, but you're going to actually provide a way for them to be able to check that stuff in real time now. And so I think that's a a, a natural um, progression and we have built up a use case for Canada that uh, will be... um, talking to when we're we're I'm going to do a little bit of a pitch here we will be um, <laughs> demonstrating what we're building under our agri-digital brand at Finnovate which is one of the largest fintech conferences in the world uh, in New York in only uh, just over a week's time so oh 9th of God. September so that's really exciting for us and we will definitely be talking about Canada and the US to that market. Emma Weston thank you very much for joining us on This Week in Startups Australia. Thanks for having me Mark. Hi, this is Mark Pesci with a few words about Twister Sponsors Get Warm, the go-to crowdsourcing site for startups. Startups need early adopters. GetWorm believes early adopters should be rewarded. So come and join a growing community of early adopters on GetWorm and get exclusive offers from the latest startups all around the world. The early bird gets the worm at getworm.com. Keen listeners to this podcast may remember episode 303 when we spoke to City of Sydney Economic Strategy Advisor Sharnel Mondi. The city had just issued its draft action plan for startups and was beginning to seek broad consultation with the community about the community's needs and how the city could help make Sydney continue to be the best place for a startup in Australia. Well, now we're on the other side of that consultation process, and the city has officially released its Tech Startups Action Plan. So Twista has the pleasure of welcoming Charnel back to the show to bring us up to date with what's on at the city and in the startup community and what they've both learned through this process. Welcome, Charnel. Thank you. So I actually have a whole bunch of documents that you mailed me in my hand. I have the Tech Startups Action Plan, but I also have the consultation response and the consultation results. What are these three documents here? Well, the consultation results is literally a summary of all the feedback that we received from the community during the time that the the draft action plan was on what we call public exhibition. Mm -hmm. So that was um, a number of months in 2015. And the response document is literally how the city responded to that feedback and what changes it would make or or not make uh, to the final action plan. 
So it really shows that it ties the listening together, the, the, the communities saying things like, we've read the plan, here's what we think, and this is the city responding to that. Absolutely. Now, the consultation results is a very big document with lots of a sort of survey information. It's, it, it, is, it reminds me of, in some ways, a localized startup muster. So a similar data set around the community, what are the community needs. What did you learn through this process of surveying the startup community in Sydney? What we learned actually was that the startup community or their predominant feedback was that they wanted entrepreneurship skills and knowledge and they wanted that delivered in a way um, that was accessible, whether it was programs or workshops or meetups or or visiting international experts. Um, and there was also this, this mention of our need to leverage connections between TAFE and universities, both as kind of education providers mm-hmm. perhaps, um, but also... Um, uh, you know that they ha- are a source of kind of talent, mm-hmm. and there was a specific mention around the need for for mentorship. Mm-hmm. So that was about twenty five percent, I guess, of the feedback that we looked at. Um, so we're we hearing that there's a real hunger for capacity building. Yes, absolutely, and I think the city, um, the feedback actually strongly supported the focus areas of. Um, of the action plan and a key one of those is creating skilled and connected entrepreneurs Mm -hmm. what role can the city do to support industry initiatives that do that Mm -hmm. or you know events and programs that we can actually create that will provide that Mm -hmm. and it's interesting because now i had uh mick lubinskis in right where you're sitting and talked to him for about an hour Mm -hmm. and i gave him a magic wand i said if there's one thing that you could do to change how things work here in, in Australia, but in Sydney specifically said, I put everyone in the same building, right? Mm-hmm. And which is that leaning to, I want everything to be connected, like all of the mm-hmm. entrepreneurs want that density that you might have really only in San Francisco, possibly in Tel Aviv, mm-hmm. right? But there's only a few places in the world that have really managed to get that kind of density. Will we be able to lean toward that? I think, there's a, a, a thought that particular innovation precincts or areas that can be created mm-hmm. um, that create that generate that density. I think if we look currently at Sydney and we look at our CBD area, mm. um, we have an enormous amount of startup activity actually concentrated in that area already. Mm-hmm. So yes, how do we make more space available right. and? The second um, most sort of um, amount of feedback that we received was actually about that need, that need for um, affordable office space, particularly when startups are scaling. Um, and they specifically mentioned that the city has an opportunity to provide this. Um, when they're also talking about you know spaces and places, there was a number of comments that referenced this opportunity, this opportunity to create a tech hub. Um, that enables startups to connect, to share ideas, share resources. I think the city has a role to play in providing some of that affordable Mm. office space Mm -hmm. and to provide space of a relatively large scale that will provide a a focus, like a a kind of centre of gravity for that startup activity. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're certainly looking at a range of ways that we can do that. One of them is through our um, voluntary planning agreement. So that's where private sector developers come to the city and in partnership we provide 
you know, community benefit. In this case, it could be a tech startup space. Right. So I take mi- mixed point. Um, obviously, we've got other things in play. We've got the state government's announcement around and work on creating an innovation hub right. at, at White at Bay. White Bay, right. You know, and I, I had impact. I had input to that plan because I was consulted by the state government on that plan, and it's it, it's ambitious and it's not clear. I think for precisely these reasons, why entrepreneurs would be one they want to be way over in White Bay, even though it doesn't seem like that far. Sydney's a series of peninsulas, and it actually isn't that close to where mm-hmm. things are happening, right? And mm-hmm. and you wonder if. Maybe the state government needs to listen to some of the things that people are saying in this plan around that, that you can't just plant a precinct somewhere and expect it to work. I think the City of Sydney is on record in talking about the the development of that area and, and, and recognising that access and public transport are essential, mm. and they're essential for any development that mm. happens down there. I think, but back to the point around what are we going to be able to do now that kind of addresses the fragmentation of the ecosystem in Sydney? Um, Some of that is about physical space and providing affordable space. Some of it is about having that space occupied by an organisation that's kind of running it as a a centre of gravity. You know, where do you go when you come to Sydney and you want to get some information? fish burners. We're we're, we're in it, right? That's right. Well, I think fish burners because it was created and because it was, you know, other than ATP Innovations, the largest kind of collection of people working in startups became the unofficial hub of startup activity in Sydney. Um, And I think we need to build on that. We need to enable organisations like Fishburners who need to scale to be able to scale. And, And the city's looking at how it can provide that kind of space, unlock that type of space. Right. And of course, Fishburners is going to be moving in October to larger spaces that are more centrally located. You have Morudi coming from Paddington now down into Liverpool Street, so very much in the city, and you have Stone and Chalk. So you sort of have, we've now got a little interesting triangle forming there of of real intensity. So it seems like they're all starting to get closer together. And then you have ATP, and ATP is essentially slowly being dismembered. I mean, no one's saying that out loud, but effectively what's starting to happen is it's being repurposed away from that goal of a startup center. And maybe this is because everything is, is it because everything is naturally being pulled into a center because that's where the entrepreneurs want to be? I think the feedback that we have is that entrepreneurs want to be um, in a place that's vibrant, mm. that's interesting, which is as not pl- necessarily ATP, right. as a as a place as a place to work yeah. that that is accessible by public transport. Um, mm. And interestingly, the uh, we did ask a question: which is the best place for tech startups? And um, the CBD was nominated as as the place by the most number of people, mm. um, followed by. Um, Redfern. Okay. Uh, sorry, by Ultimo, sorry, and right. then, Redfern. then Redfern. So there's a recognition of that that um, density out at ATP yeah. Innovation. Well, and in, in, in terms of public transport, it is really easy to get to ATP. Yeah. It's just that there's not a lot right there. It's you're not in the city. Then again, you're not you're not in Ultimo either, but you're adjacent to it. Yeah, I think um, if we look at the city as the innovation precinct, mm. and you look at that that is the place where people want to be. What we need to look at is how do we work better together to connect, our, you know, our ideas and our resources. And I think that is the work that the city can 
start to facilitate with the ecosystem. Now, a big part of, of this plan, and really a big part of any effort that has to work in the startup community, is measuring success. So as the next couple of years go by, how do we know if the plan is helping to move the needle about making Sydney a better startup community? Hmm. I guess we looked at two levels of measurement. The first one is uh, on a large scale. So if we're talking about impacting on the economy and we're talking about impacting on jobs, then we have to take that as a measure. Mm -hmm. We have to... um, to to state that we think that the work that we've done has had an impact on that. Um, we've also looked at sort of two measures around innovation, so our global standing on an innovation um, scale mm-hmm. as a city, and also obviously the um, the compass ecosystem ranking that looks at at Sydney and and its position. Um, And then we've also looked at the things that we can measure that we know we've had control over, which is the products, the programs uh, or the projects that we've either created. Mm -hmm. So we look at the the feedback that we get from, say, participants at our 101, um, Tech Startup 101 business seminar um, to see whether that actually achieved what we hoped it would in terms of education, et cetera. Um, And then also in the data that we get back from the initiatives that we sponsor. So there's an expectation that those projects will be evaluated. So we'll be looking at the number of participants who attend, you know, Spark Festival. We're looking at the diversity of them. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll be looking at the amount of international expertise that have been able to, um, sorry, experts that have been able to share that expertise through the, the events that we've sponsored. So it's kind of a macro and a micro level. Mm-hmm. Um and when you're doing those measurements, will you be sharing those results back out so that we'll all be able to sort of get a sense of how things are tracking? The action plan indicates that we will report um, through council mm-hmm. on its progress. Mm-hmm. And we also report on you know our sponsorship programs, how they're tracking in terms of meeting their outcomes. So that's the reporting. Um, the plan also will be reviewed in five years. So that will obviously include the evaluation. So is that 2020 or 2021? 2021. Okay, so six year, or five years from the from the final plan, not from the, uh, the consultation Correct. process. Okay, so that and that and that's quite reasonable. And in that period of time. Do you expect that through the programs maybe that are happening at the libraries, the code camps or the code clubs, and we had Annie on talking about code club not very long ago, do you think that it may be possible to sort of bring the startup culture, which is often imported, to something that's sort of part of the life of the city that's, you know, more woven into the fabric of what Sydney thinks of itself as? Absolutely. And I think... We're seeing that change now, mm-hmm. you know, even from the creation of the draft plan to a final plan. I mean, that's the document that gives us a way forward. Um, and a key part of that is actually building the entrepreneurial culture and community or supporting it. And, you know, you do see that in our library programs, we now have had a code. There are children doing, you know, stop motion animation. Mm-hmm. Um, there are opportunities for um you know tech startup 
community or people who are just kind of interested in it to come to an event. I think that those events are profiling our successful entrepreneurs and they're inspiring people about what you can do. And I think university students are increasingly becoming aware of where their skills and talents might be used in creating or launching a business. Um, I think we've got a way to go definitely in raising the profile, but this sense of innovation and the importance of innovation, I think, has um, has elevated into a kind of a, a, a national agenda, and I think that it that it will change. It will become part of our our, um, our, our DNA. <laughs> yeah. No. All right. So, where can the listeners of this podcast find all of the documents that are here? They can go to our. Uh, sydneyyoursay.com.au site and it's got the action plan it's got the results it's got the response um, there's a summary of the survey there's a uh, and you know the kind of shortcut version of, of what we the feedback that we received and you can always go to the Sydney of uh, City of Sydney website all right final question it's going to be a little bit contentious I suspect but in a good way is this a template for Melbourne, for Adelaide, for Perth, for Brisbane to be able to do the same thing with their own cities? I think each city needs to consider the elements within its local community um, and they'll have different strengths. If it's used as a, a template, if there are ideas in here, if the feedback is useful, then absolutely. I certainly think you know, Sydney is a global a global city and we want to ensure it remains globally competitive and we need to do everything we can to ensure um, it, it, it remains that. But there's, if the, any of this is of use to other cities, then go for it. Cheryl Mondi, thank you very much for being on This Week in Startups Australia. Thank you. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. I want to take a moment to tell you about Twista's newest sponsor, Creative3. It's Australia's largest conference for creative tech entrepreneurs and startups. On September 22nd, Creative3 brings together entrepreneurs, innovators, investors for a one-day forum covering areas like virtual reality, animation, games, fashion, film, and entertainment. This year, Creative3 will feature Bethany Kobe, CEO and co-founder of Technology Will Save Us, Ben Britton of Mighty Games, Anna Reeves of That Startup Show, Airtree VC's Paul Bennett, plus many more talented folks sharing the secrets of their creative successes. Creative3 has sold out six years in a row, so don't miss out. Buy your tickets at creative3.com.au before August 26th to save 50 bucks, and we'll see you there. We'll see you there because, yeah, I'm the MC. Creative3, it's where you need to be. Australia isn't perfect, and a lot of folks around here might want to accept that and then just curse the darkness. Both Emma Weston and Charnel Mondi, they're actively working to make Australia a better place to do business, whether you're a farmer or you're a tech entrepreneur. What does it take to make a city a great place to do business? What does it take to remove the risk from a grain sale? These are questions worth asking, and this nation is better off because Charnel and Emma found the answers. 
big thanks to Twister sponsors Braintree, Getworm, and Creative3 because their support makes this podcast possible. Thanks to Felix Wormuth and AnalogCabin.net for his hard work creating a podcast that's a joy to listen to. Thanks to Emma Weston and Chanel Mondi for making the time to come on our show. And please remember to visit our Tumblr at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. That's where we will be posting links to all of the documents for the City of Sydney's Action Plan for Tech Startups. We'll be back in a fortnight and we will be talking about the opportunities for Australian entrepreneurs in China. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia.